scientists learn more and more about less and less until finally they know everything about nothing. <laughs> Philosophers learn less and less about more and more until finally they know nothing about everything. Whereas musicians really don't learn anything about anything, so they alone know how to enjoy life. Right? <laughs> Something like that. That was on a sign on TU's music department wall when I went to school there. There are those who spend their lives, engineers, doctors, scientists, focusing down on one particular area of study, and they achieve incredible knowledge of that one thing. But they're pretty much useless with everything else. Philosophers, on the other hand, must possess the widest possible education, so they pick up bits and pieces about everything and become a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. Well, except that's not actually it. True, one definition of, of philosophy is all learning exclusive of technical precepts and practical arts. That's <laughs> everything except for the things that are actually useful. <laughs> but philosophy is really the study of ideas about knowledge, truth, and nature, the meaning of life, etc. It is thinking about thinking. That's what philosophy is. You don't. You might not know this. Theology is a subset of philosophy. <laughs> it's it's about thinking about thinking about God, which may explain why some pastors are well like we are. But at least we focus on God and, and on his on his scriptures. So so that's good. So philosophers learning everything, you know. But what good are they to anybody? <laughs> they don't really do anything, I mean, necessarily. In New Testament times, most philosophers were rich guys with slaves that did all their work. Not many get paid to sit around and talk all day, you know. <laughs> A very few bright, you know, working stiffs were accepted into the philosophy camp. They made their money by teaching young rich guys, basically. Or sometimes one of the rich guys would enjoy listening to them enough that they would become their patron and pay them to be there. And they'd all sit around and they learn something new from each other. That's, that was their deal. And keep in mind that with all that knowledge about knowledge, it was really easy for them to think they know more than everybody else. <laughs> to get their noses in the air, as it were. Because, well, they really did know more than everyone else. But did they know what they needed to know? Athens was a city with a large contingent of these guys. And after being run out of Thessalonica and Berea by a rather violent contingent of non-thinking Jews, some friends accompanied Paul there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul was by himself with nobody to help him like he usually did in the midst of the philosophical city. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city that was full of idols. Athens had temples for every conceivable god everywhere. And, and where there weren't temples, they'd put up statues of these gods. The Roman Petronius 
with great sarcasm, said, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's Athens. <laughs> and this provoked Paul. Why? To the church in the very next city that Paul would visit, he wrote, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partakers with demons. To demons. Wow, you know, no wonder he was provoked. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. His spirit was provoked. So he kept doing what he always did. He went first to the synagogue. He always went there first because that's where the believers were. They didn't believe in Jesus yet, but that's because they hadn't been taught about him yet. Paul trained these Bible-wise people, and they became the nucleus of each new church in each city. You know, well, those who believe in Jesus. But there were all those demonic idols. So he kept doing what he always did, and he went to the marketplace. Kind of like the mall, only more, you know. Everybody gathered there so that they could buy what they needed, but also to talk, to do business, to enjoy entertainment. You know, you get the idea. We've got to go where they are, people. That's what I'm saying here. Some of the Epicurean Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Philosophers, I get a kick out of that, and they call him a babbler. <laughs> it was actually an expression, it, a seed picker. That's what it actually was, a seed picker. <laughs> it was like a chicken, you know, clicking around and picking up seeds off the ground here and there, you know. So they, they may have been kind of making fun at him, but at the same time, they were really saying, hey, he's kind of like us. He's like one of us, you know. Philosophers are often uh, self-depreciating like that. And sometimes, out of habit, they depreciate others. But if you run into that, don't take it personally. Uh, they, don't, they don't mean it personally. That's just kind of the way they are. <laughs> Though some call him a babbler. Actually, the others may have been a little more dangerous. Foreign gods. That's illegal in the empire. But then... These are philosophers, so probably most people just roll their eyes and say, oh yeah, it's them. <laughs> I don't know. But they said divinities, plural. Jesus and the resurrection. You know, how do they get plural? Well, it's kind of interesting, actually. You see, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. Hey, wait a minute. That, that, that sounds like a name I've heard. You're exactly right, it does. Anastasis was also a woman's name. So, because they didn't listen very carefully, a common problem of those who think they know everything, they thought he was calling Jesus a God as well as some woman. A lot of philosophers don't listen carefully. Uh, <laughs> it's because they are busy thinking of what they're going to say next, really. Okay, lots of people do that, not just philosophers, but 
So anyway, two kinds of philosophers here. The Epicureans, they were similar to our modern deists, if you've heard of deists. There's some god or gods, they started up the universe and then they wandered off and forgot about us, basically. <laughs> and they denied there's any kind of life after death. So this life's goal was to avoid pain and find pleasure. <laughs> no surprise there. I mean, if this is all there is, then they should seek their own pleasure first, if they were right. The Stoics had a little bit better beat on things. They had a very strong sense of human brotherhood because they believed God is in everyone and everything. Not that he is everything and everyone, like a pantheist would think. They still recognized that God was independent and he doesn't need anything. So as you can imagine, they thought each person should be a part of the purpose, be a part of the purpose of nature. That was a big deal for them. You know, you really ought to avoid pleasure for pleasure's sake and when things are tough, keep a stiff upper lip and keep doing right. That's a stoic. But it's not the real God that either of them chased, so they actually weren't so different as they thought they were. And they are interested in anything that sounds remotely philosophical, so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was kind of like a college, a court of law, and PBS and a coffee shop all rolled into one, okay? <laughs> that's, that's the Areopagus, if you want to want a picture of that. 400 years before this, Socrates, a philosopher who made a living by teaching, he was led to the Areopagus for a trial, <laughs> He was accused of being impious and corrupting the minds of his young students. So they made him drink a concoction with hemlock. Ah, so claiming Paul was teaching a foreign teaching of foreign gods it could be the same thing. But the power of the Areopagus had waned considerably by this point, so probably there was no great danger for Paul in that, but we don't know. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. <laughs> you know, new, strange things. We wish to know. You know, do they, are they really interested? Are they, you know, in other words, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> what is wrong with them? Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing of something new. <sighs> Well, when you don't have an eternal purpose for your life or one that lacks any focus, I suppose you got to get your kicks from somewhere. But They brought him there. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, wait a minute, stop for a minute. Tarsus was one of the new centers of philosophy. Athens being one of the old ones. Paul was born in Tarsus. And he also had his advanced training from Gamaliel in Jerusalem. So he understood how philosophers work. You know, probably we need to do our homework before we hike over to the Areopagus. I mean, <laughs> start somewhere less exotic, you know, like the coffee shop down the street or schools or the mall or whatever. And then when you're ready, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. 
Okay, point one. When you talk to people, tie into their world. When Jesus talked to the woman at the well, he did, right? When he talked to Nicodemus, he joined a whole different world. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. No matter their social position, their financial strength, or anything else, people need us to connect with them. Paul does it beautifully here. But I want to get to what he says. If, if we're going to engage the modern philosopher, we need a plan. We need a plan. And I think what Paul does is good. Paul starts this way. The God who made the world and everything in it. God as creator. All right? This is the starting point to explain Christianity. It's why the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God. It's why John started his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word. If a person believes in many gods, as did those philosophers, then this statement says, all those are subject to this one who created everything. If a person rejects the existence of a spiritual dimension at all, and thus a god of any sort, this sets the foundation for the paradigm, the proposal that we make that is Christianity. This is the starting point. Why is Paul's statement so very brief? I mean, it isn't much. Well, because these are philosophers. They work on these thoughts all day long. If we talk with educated philosopher types, we need to make succinct statements. They don't like to waste time, okay? God is creator, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth. If God is the creator, then he has the right to rule. Again, short and to the point. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by men. This is fascinating because where Paul stood, he could wave his hand and he could point to at least three, probably four huge, gorgeous overbuilt temples. Right where they stood, they could see them. I mean, the Parthenon was right there. They were right underneath it. But catch what he's saying. What all people have to understand about the God in which we believe. If God made everything, he can't be a part of that everything. God does not belong to this physical dimension. God is spirit, Jesus said. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything exists only because God wills that it exists. God is the source of life. God is the sustainer of life. As such, God is transcendent. I learned all these philosophy words. I have to share them, right? wholly separate from that which he created. As such, God possesses what philosophers called aseity, uh, its existence originating from and having no source other than itself, according to the Random House Dictionary. God is completely different from and better than everything else. Better than, you know, have you ever noticed that people don't want anyone else to be better than them? <laughs> For many, that even includes God. That was Satan's problem. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But Paul proposes that God is better. He is wholly separate from us. He created all things and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God created humans, but not one after the other after the other. Okay? Instead, he designed procreation, the human DNA. Remember the idea of the brotherhood of all humanity that many of these philosophers embrace? Paul is saying, from where do you think that impulse comes? Why do you think you feel like that? Thus, also pointing out that humans are dependent on God. So God is not so simple as some try to make him out. <laughs> this creation that he made and sustains, he also orchestrates in fine detail. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Nations exist and cease to exist because God decides it will be that way. Nations grow and wane, they're conquered and they're defeated, because God has a plan that he is carrying out. God and God alone is sovereign. And God does what he does for a purpose, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. People are supposed to seek God. Floundering about in the dark if they have to until they find Him. We are designed by God. All that happens on the earth is designed by Him to cause us to seek Him. Feel their way toward Him. It does kind of sound like a bunch of philosophers you know, grasping along with all they know about everything that amounts to next to nothing. The plan of God then also includes the responsibility of humans. But don't miss that God wants to be found, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. God is, Paul is saying, immense, what we call omnipresent. He is close to each and every one of us. So he knows everyone's heart. Even those Athenian philosophers, they like to think philosophers, they like to think they're above that sort of thing. You know, better than that. But every human being is close to God at every moment of every day. Every human heart is an open book to God. Which means God is imminent. Very close to us. The balance between imminence, they call it the closeness of God, and transcendence, that separateness and independence of God, that's really critical to theology, to the philosophy of understanding God. Well, a creator God. By the way, Paul quoted there, the poet, that's a hymn to Zeus, 
a false god. <laughs> they thought they understood the greatest god, Zeus, the great, but they didn't. And Paul uses words with which they are familiar to show them the real god. And this, this is actually not hard to do, by the way. You just read what they read and you'll be surprised how well it works. So Brian Duncan sings a song that was written by one of the Beatles. Changed a few words and it's amazing. It's a great hymn. <laughs> Use their words and pretty soon you can point people the right way. So, we're basically back to the point we've already made. If you want to talk to them about Christ, first enter their world. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Another of their poems. And again, Paul will turn their thought on its head. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. They thought they could make a representation of any given God and please that God that way. Well, one of the Ten Commandments is don't even try, don't even attempt to make an image to represent God. You'll get it wrong, you'll mess it up. That, that's one of the Ten Commandments. The divine being is not of the same nature as this material universe. You can't represent him. But, of course, people did it anyway. Fortunately, God is gracious. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. As he stood in the Areopagus, Paul warns them that they stand in the apex of all time. There really is a vast difference between everything before Christ and everything after there's a reason the whole world counts time from before Christ and after that history is split at the cross. They can call it before the common era and after the common era, but no one can get away from the fact that something caused this to be the common era. Someone draws all people together in this era of every nation on all the face of the earth, regardless of their dwelling place, everyone is commanded to repent. And that's how Paul moves to a distinctly Christian message. Repent. Pretty direct. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Repent. For there is a day fixed when he will judge even these philosophers in righteousness. There is right and wrong, he's saying, and you are, like every other breathing human, not righteous. And at a very specific time, the one and only ever truly righteous man will judge all people everywhere. A very specific man because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Unsure a man has a right to judge you? 
You can be assured he does because he and he alone has God raised from the dead. He alone is resurrected. Assurance by raising him from the dead. Jesus is not just a man, not just a philosopher, not just a religious teacher. God raised him from the dead. Hey, wait a minute. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and others. So did his apostles, Paul and Peter, and and Elijah and Elisha did as well. That's five people, as Scripture says, caused people to get up from the dead. True. How many of them ascended into heaven? Oh, yeah. None of them. Their bodies are all molding in the grave. In a way, they had it worse. They had to die twice. (laughs) It's more accurate to call those other events resuscitations, temporary pictures of what will one day be reality. Well, we might ask about Lazarus, but they wouldn't. They didn't know anything about those other miracles. And I'm afraid their response was all too predictable. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. (laughs) Some mocked. To the church in the city he would next visit, Paul wrote, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, crucified and risen from the grave. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Some mocked, others were willing to listen. There are fair people, even even among philosophers. (laughs) They are willing to hear the story of Jesus. Maybe, Maybe they're not there yet, maybe they don't believe yet, but they're willing to discuss our beliefs with us. They're on a spiritual journey. Sometimes we, we just need to be patient. I mean, think about it. The proposition that a man was raised from the dead by a God who created and sustained all things is a pretty big piece to bite off. And, and we haven't even started on the hypostatic union yet. That's philosophical talk for Jesus being one person with both a human and a divine nature that are independent and yet held by that one person. Like I said, it's a big chunk to bite off and chew. Give people a break and let them think about this thing. Maybe for the moment you walk away and let God work in them. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionys... Dionys, (laughs) Try that one again. Diano, yes, I'll again remind him, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with them. (laughs) Some will believe. The Areopagite, the philosopher, he got it. 
All his knowledge worked together and he put A, B, and C together and he believed. But maybe more interesting, at least to me, was the woman and the others with them. You see, it wasn't legal or proper or accepted for a woman to be a part of the philosophical school. So she had to be sitting outside listening in along with the others. Did, did you catch the ratio? One philosopher and a greater number, don't know how many, who were not even a part of the discussion, but they heard. Often when we defend Christianity against people, we think we, we think we've failed because the one with whom we were arguing didn't believe. But it's often the case that more who are listening in are affected than the ones that we're actually speaking with. And we may never know it. Well, until the new creation. So go ahead, dive in. Argue philosophy. <laughs> you won't be alone, by the way. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his disciples. He said when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Concerning righteousness, there is a man who, unlike every other person whose heart ever beat, was perfectly righteous. And that one will stand as judge on a specific fixed day. Not sure he should have that authority. You ever had somebody, well, I don't know, Jesus could talk to me. He goes, I am the master of my fate. You ever heard that? <laughs> okay, you get up out of your grave and, and we'll grant you that prerogative. <laughs> okay, is that fair? But unless you plan to do that, Paul has a better idea. It was about believers that Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Message? Take the gift. <laughs> That's our message. Take the gift. Take the gift that's the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He was a substitute for you when he shed his blood. The propitiation. He was a substitute in your place. And we know his sacrifice was effective because he rose from the grave. <laughs> and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The perfect man, God in human form, gave up every prerogative, rightly his, to be a replacement in death for us. Not just physical death. He experienced on the cross the rejection of the Father. He experienced spiritual death so that we would not have to. And just as God raised this perfectly righteous man from the grave, so will he raise all who believe to eternal life. A new strange idea for those men 
who spent all their lives thinking about how others think. And Paul says, if you're going to think, think about God, the one who created and sustains you, the one who has the right to rule in your life, the God who is not of this world. You are dependent on him, and he has a plan. Seek him. He is very near. And he commands you to repent. There is a day coming when all will be judged, including you, by one man, Jesus Christ, crucified in weakness. Do you stumble over that? Do you think it foolishness? Or do you remember that he was raised in power? The wisdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we'll take the gift. (laughs) We know that there is nothing in us that deserves such an indescribable gift as your son. Why? Why would you send him to die for us? Why would he die for us? We don't understand. We don't know the answer to that, but we know you. And we know your promises. And here you said, those that believe, those that admit their guilt, admit their problem, believe that your son can and will save them and commit their lives to him, those people you will bring into a glorious, perfect existence, a new creation. But we have a few people in our minds, Lord, that we know don't believe. People that are so sophisticated, they're sure they know what they're talking about. But we know they don't. And we pray that the words that Paul used with those philosophers back then would somehow help us, help others, see you as the creator the sustainer, the life giver, the one that can give eternal life and free us from spiritual death. Thank you, Father, for the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.